Uh, if any parents have kids fifth grade and below and you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching now, we offer that called Gospel Project. Feel free to take them back. There'll be somebody out on the patio that can help you know where to uh, take your children. And uh, the rest of us will be together this morning in the book of James. If you would turn with me to James chapter 5. James 5. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one that looks like this, this blue Bible, and those Bibles were on page 587, page 587. Last uh, Sunday morning, if you were with us, you'll remember that we started a short three-week series of messages on the topic of money and possessions. We've titled this, uh, Truths About Treasure. The vast majority of time, probably 90% of the weeks out of a year, 95%, we work our way verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through a book of the Bible. But once or twice a year, we like to take a few weeks to consider what the Scriptures say about a particular topic. And so we look across all the books of the Bible and try to capture some of the main ideas and focus in, in that way around a particular issue. And uh, in this series, we're looking at some of the things the Bible says about money and possessions, particularly some of the things the Scriptures say in lesser-known passages, so the texts that people wouldn't commonly think of when it comes to the topic of money. Last week, if you were with us, you'll remember we were in uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, and we enjoyed the truth that the character and promises of God are the cause of Christian contentment, meaning that the key to live out the command that says to be content, which occurs many places in the Bible, that the truth you need in order to live that out is not that if you just had more than you now have, then with that you could be content, but rather... The Scriptures say that what you have today is enough and that the ground of contentment isn't in how much you possess, but rather it's in who God is and what God has already done and promised to you. Hebrews 13, 5, and 6 are wonderfully encouraging and uplifting verses. I hope if you weren't here that you'll go back and read them and spend some time considering their uh, significance. Today, though, we're going to really switch gears, and instead of looking at an uplifting, easy passage, we're instead going to look at a rather aggressive, confrontive, and combative passage. So if you missed last week and came today, that's your own fault, all right? The human author of the book of James was Jesus' half-brother named James. James was a crucial leader in the early church. If you're interested in that, look at passages like Acts 15 that describe his leadership. And know that this was a man who knew Jesus well. So we can be confident, not only because it's in the Bible, but because of the specific relationship that James had with Jesus, that what he tells us is true. The book of James is um, a... Letter in the New Testament, that's a favorite book of many Christians, perhaps because James puts things so simply and clearly and directly. There's just no struggle 
trying to understand what he meant. It's very direct and very clear. We'll be looking together at verses 1 through 6 of James 5. Uh, Kendra Ball is going to come read for us. Uh, Many of you may not have met Kendra yet. Kendra is a candidate for membership. We'll be uh, voting on her this coming Lord's Day in the evening. So if you haven't got to know her yet, I encourage you to to, uh, catch her and ask her how she came to Christ and know that this passage is mean, but Kendra is not. Okay? Will you read for us? Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Thank you. I promise she's easy to talk to. (laughs) Uh, At first glance, when we read these verses, what comes to your mind? Who do you think of? How does it hit your own heart? I imagine for most of us, when we hear those verses read, we think, thank God that's not me. And yet I would encourage you this morning to try to uh, suspend that kind of judgment until you really hear what James has to say. Maybe there are ways in which some of the principles and particulars that James speaks to actually do apply to people like us. Now, at, at first glance, it seems that there's one intended audience for these verses, namely, the rich who oppress those of fewer means so that they can have still more. That's what we think of when we think of these verses. And to be clear, James unleashes in these six verses a most striking assault on those who greedily prosper at the expense of others. And he does so in such a way that probably more than any other particular passage in the New Testament, this is a judgment upon the sinfully rich. I mean, consider some of the things James has said. He he opens by saying, To those who are rich, you ought to weep and howl. He tells them there are terrible troubles ahead. He tells them everything you've worked for is useless. He tells them their source of hope will eat their flesh like fire. And he tells them the cries of those they have oppressed have reached the ears of God. But perhaps because this denunciation is so severe, it's easy to miss the fact that there is another audience being addressed in these verses. You see, there's what we might call 
the explicit message to the explicit audience, those who are rich and have gotten rich on the backs of others. But there's also another audience. There's an implicit audience and an implicit message for them. You see, James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 convey truth for both the oppressor and for the oppressed. And so this morning, as we consider this text, to really hear James out, we have to consider what he's saying to both. Because the letter of James would originally have been read to church after church after church, most of which were made up of people who, because they chose to follow Jesus, were coming under oppression. Certainly, there would have been a few rich people in the congregations, and those rich people would have heard this text as being spoken to them, and yet the rest of the church would have heard, even as the oppressor is being spoken to, the oppressed are hearing a message for them. Let's take first this implicit message to the oppressed. Friend, if you've been taken advantage of by those with more, more wealth, more stuff, more education, more power, then hear God loud and clear. He sees. He hears. He knows. He is not indifferent. He is not like everybody else who is only attracted to what has bling. God sees everything. And God will avenge. If you've been ripped off by an elaborate con, if you're employer has knowingly defrauded you of wages you are owed. If you are deceived into a student loan that you didn't understand and you cannot ever possibly pay back. If your boss lied to you about incentives and bonuses in order to get more out of you and keep it for himself. If you were born with the deck stacked against you, placed into a system of economic depravity, systemic oppression, generational poverty. Friend, hear this. God knows. And God cares. In a world wrought with oppression and injustice, you need not wonder if wrongs will go unrighted. Brothers and sisters, that is a divine impossibility. God is not like us. We see only what's right in front of us, and often not even that very well. God sees across time everything equally the same. And He never has amnesia. The God of all righteousness will ensure that all evil is met with just judgment. Oppressors 
won't rob the oppressed forever. Wealth acquired through oppressive means is one of the great evils of life in a fallen world. And it most certainly will not be part of the next one. The things we experience in this world where power is abused and wealth is harnessed for the 1% will not be the case in the new heavens and the new earth. The injustices you faced at the hands of the greedy are not beyond the sight and scope of God. Although it may feel like it, God is not unengaged. The just judge will justly judge. The church, do you see how incredibly freeing this message would be if we believed it? Do you, do you feel it? This is one you ought to feel and have all the feels. Friend, if you have been oppressed, then understand you need not live with the enormous burden of bitterness. Bitterness, if it is taken in and nurtured and fostered and festered and you run over in your mind over and over and over and over again how someone held you down with their thumb, then that will spread in your soul like gangrene. And friend, passages like this are the antidote. Because they tell us that even if that wrong is not fixed today, it one day will be. Therefore, you can rest in that. Friend, you need not take on a perpetual victim mentality. You need not give up. You need not decide to live like the rest of the world. Because God will, in the final analysis, take care of all. Amen? This means, friend, that if you have been wronged, then you can forgive. Jesus forgave you when you did not deserve it. You can forgive others who also do not deserve it. And that forgiveness does not say what you did was right. Rather, that forgiveness releases you from the terrible choking, the spiritual weight that you carry if you do not forgive. And it entrusts God to do what is right. Now, a lot of that isn't explicitly clear here and stated in James chapter 5, but it is other places in the Scriptures. Take, for example, in Romans chapter 12. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Ouch. That means the judgment that they have tried to put on you, in your kindness and love, you are heaping that back onto them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, that is the implicit message for the majority of people who would have heard the letter of James read in its original day. James meant to speak directly to oppressors, but to do so in such a way that all the oppressed would overhear that they would know what's true about God, that they would be released from some of the things they might be tempted to carry around. So friend, if if you are poor, if you are marginalized, if you are defrauded, if you've been abused, if you've been on the receiving end of malicious social and financial injustices, God is for you. God has a special disposition for the poor and the powerless. That is clear from Genesis to Revelation. It is everywhere on the pages of the Bible. God is for you. And God will act on Judgment Day on your behalf. So church, do you hear what that means? That means, brothers and sisters, that we should be prayerful, that we should be patient, that we should forgive. And by God's grace and in God's power, we ought to individually step away from that cycle so that it's not continually being repeated, even by us. And brothers and sisters, as people who know Jesus Christ, individually as we go through our everyday lives, we must work for ways privately, personally, to fight oppression, to stand for truth and justice, to live with dignity, showing people something of the goodness of God in the way we interact with them. Whatever the color whatever the creed and whatever economic status another is in. This is good and right and godly. So that's the implicit application and meaning of James 5, 1 to 6, for the oppressed. But the explicit message here is to the oppressor. Friend, if you are unrepentant in your oppression of people, if that is the way in which you live your life, 
then understand that this text says you may claim Jesus with your mouth, but by the way you live your life, you show in the heart you don't actually know him. And that's why the judgment pronounced here is so severe. I mean, look at verse 1, the, just the verbs. Weep. Howl. Friend, make no mistake, God takes the abuse of wealth and power exceptionally seriously. To be someone in a position to bless and empower and instead to choose to harm and hinder is to lie about God because that is not what God does and that is not how God has designed the world to live and to be. Those who are rich and they've become rich based on the backs of others will get the ultimate consequences they are owed. Verse 1 says it very clearly, that judgment is coming. And it's announced in such a way that if you've read your Old Testament, probably some texts or at least concepts are coming to mind. Because James here is acting as though and preaching as though he's an Old Testament prophet in which he's denouncing people who are oppressing others. If you're unfamiliar with some of those books, maybe this week take up just one of them, the book of Amos. The book of Amos is is about systemic financial oppression and the marginalization of the poor. This is something God cares a lot about. So verse 1 announces the judgment. And here in the rest of this, particularly in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, James lays out his case. So imagine with me, if you would, that we've now been transformed out of this auditorium and we're sitting together in a courtroom. And you are the jury. And James is the prosecutor. And James has put forth the sinfully rich. And he says, let me stack up for you the case against them. Here is the threefold evidence against those who have gotten their wealth off the backs and under the oppression of others. Exhibit A, he says in verses 2 to 3, is hoarded treasures. Hoarded treasures. Exhibit B, verse 4, is defrauded workers. And exhibit C, verse 5, is wasted wealth. Now, I don't pretend this is any fun. I mean, this is a, a heavy passage. But my obligation when we open the Word is simply to tell you what it says and to try to do so with all the clarity and simplicity I at least presently have in hopes that you would hear what Christ would say to you. So let's look at each of these pieces of evidence. First, um, Exhibit A, verses 2 and 3. The first piece of evidence James sets against those who are sinfully rich is hoarded treasures. And the imagery in verses 2 and 3 is remarkably striking. 
He says that people who've lived their lives to purchase more and more and more and more and more solely for the sake of opulence, and they've done so successfully, but they've done so at the expense and to the harm of others, will meet an unexpected demise. And he builds that image by saying, your, your riches have rotted, your clothes have been destroyed. Even the incorruptible gold has become corrupted. In other words, everything you've lived for is wasted. It's rotted. You have hoarded treasures, and thereby those treasures have shown themselves to not be treasures. The irony is palpable. Friend, if you've gotten ahead through deception, if you have acquired more at the expense of what's equitable and just, God says that will all be met with judgment. Hoarding treasures for yourselves while holding those with less as somehow less than you is something God does not mess around with. If you always put away what you earn so you can keep earning more and more and more and more and more, or if you always spend what you have, all of it, on yourself, either of those, these verses say, is wrong, evil. Now, this raises, of course, some rather troubling questions. Let me see if I can surface some of them for us. For example, does James chapter 5 mean that none of us should save for retirement? Is that, is, is that hoarding? I mean, if you don't spend it today and you save it for later, that does mean you could have given this today. So, does James mean to raise that as an issue? Or another question, is it sinful to save three to six months of incomes for emergencies? That's the gospel of Dave Ramsey. Is that wrong? Or is it, it, is it sinful to buy a quality guitar? or a new computer, or a nicer car, or a bigger house. Or go on a nice vacation. Are those things in and of themselves inherently sinful? Is that what James intends to say in these verses? Now, some of you are shaking your heads. Do you see how the text causes us to ask those questions at least? The key in understanding all of this is the second half of verse 3. It says, you have laid up treasure in the last day. You have laid up treasure in the last day. Friends, to lay up treasure means to... Hoard and heap more and more and more for yourself. Particularly in the context of doing so in such a way that you're breaking the backs of others in order to get ahead yourself. 
that's very different than honest, hard work. That's very different than saving for old age when you won't be able to work at the same pace you can now. That's very different than saving up for a big purchase that's important to you and that you'll use in such a way that it's going to further the work of the kingdom of God. The Bible does not teach that money is bad. The Bible does not teach that people who make a lot are somehow less spiritual than those who make a little. The Bible does not teach if you buy off-brand, then you're closer to Jesus than if you buy name-brand. The Bible does not teach you shouldn't save. In fact, it teaches quite the opposite. Here's one example. The book of Proverbs teaches in Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares for bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Why? Well, if an ant doesn't store up what it needs for a time when it can't get to what it needs, then what will happen? It will die. The book of Proverbs, in its most wise way, says, friend, if you are lazy and you don't save, then when difficulty comes... Now, it's hard for us to imagine a time in which it wouldn't be summer because we live in Arizona. But the application here, of course, is there will be times in the future when you're not making what you make now. So save. Verse 9, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. James 5 can't mean don't save for a rainy day because Proverbs 6 tells us that's what we're supposed to do. So how do we reconcile Proverbs 6 and James 5? Do you get the issue? Right? It seems to me the way we do so is to consider both motive and means. Motive and means. In other words, Christian, save, but don't hoard. And I think you know the difference. Work hard, but don't deceive. Labor, but don't oppress. This first bit of evidence, these exhibit A, says the sinfully wealthy will meet the justice of God because they have hoarded instead of shared. Exhibit B in verse 4 of James chapter 5 is that you've defrauded workers. This is the second piece of evidence. Now, very likely, James, as he wrote and penned this letter, had in his mind wealthy landowners. So there's a bit of a cultural separation here for most of us, at least those of us who are from a Western context. 
in the ancient world, many people literally lived off the land. And so, if you were blessed to own your own land, you probably planted your own crops, prayed for rain, and then harvested your own crops. But there were a few. Like today, we would think of the the 1%. There were the 1% who had enough land that you would hire people to work in your fields for you. And so they would show up at sunup, they would go out into the fields, they would reap the harvest, very often wheat. Then at the end of the day, they would come back at sundown, and what would they expect from the landowner? Their wages. Now, they didn't wait until the 15th and the 30th. It's not how the economy worked. If you were a laborer, you were, you were very likely to be extremely poor. And that meant your work for that day would meet the necessities for that day. And so, friend, if you're a wealthy landowner and you say, if you work for me today, I will give you a dollar an hour. So you put in 10 hours, you come back, and I will give you what? $10. But apparently, some rich landowners were saying, 10 bucks for the day, and then when they came back, perhaps they said it this way, well, you, you didn't work hard enough. Or here's the overhead for the shekel thing, whatever that's called. I should have done my research on that. Anybody know? Scythe? All right. How do you know that? Okay. <laughs> the, it's going to cost me $4 to get, to get that sharpened. So that's going to come out of your earnings. So I'm going to give you 5 Or maybe they even said, no, I'm unpleased with your work. So I'm not going to give you anything. Come back tomorrow, and if you work hard, then I'll give you the 20. Friend, if that happened to a, a laborer in the first century, for most of them, that meant they didn't get to eat that night because that day's wages paid for that day's necessities. Now, I'm unaware of any member who owns a farm and pays people to work for them hourly. Although it's possible over here, all of you who know what this is, maybe I'm wrong. And so it would be easy for us to think, okay, well, I don't own a farm, I don't have any crops, and I don't employ any people to work in my field. Therefore, whew, this one doesn't apply to me. But friend, is there any way in which the underlying principles of this passage do, in fact, apply to us? Of course there are. That's, the answer to that question is always yes. That was a gimme. So I've tried to think about if you're not a businessman who owns a company who are defrauding your workers, then how might the underlying principles of this text apply to you and to me? And I would venture into um, risky territory here. 
But just think out loud with me, okay? Do you take privileges like high-speed internet, streaming internet subscriptions, $5 lattes in the morning, $15 lunches during the workday? Do you take these privileges, treat them like needs, and then turn up your nose at people who can't do the same? Do you think less of people who have less, who can't do the things you do? Church, if we treat people with less like they are less, do you see that that is actually a form of oppression? Here's another one. Christian, is there anybody you owe? Now, I don't mean owe like you have a mortgage and you need to pay your mortgage. Yes, you should do that. I'm speaking more about is there somebody that has done a service for you or that you made a commitment to and you haven't paid them? And you haven't paid them not because you forgot, but because by virtue of delaying, you're hoping they will forget or that I'll just go lost in the shuffle. Brothers and sisters, when you go out to a sit-down restaurant and someone waits on you, do you skimp on the tip? Friend, if you're in a supervisory role of any kind, do you find deep in your heart that you get people to work hard for you, not so they can experience promotion and benefit, but so that you can climb up their backs, taking for yourself the credit for those under you. While the circumstances we deal with are not fields and laborers, the issues of selfishness, of dishonesty, of cutting corners, of oppression, they remain exactly the same. And while it's harder for us to see this, it's all around us. May we repent if we have been the oppressor. Now, exhibit C, verse 5, the last piece of evidence is the most difficult one. It's wasted wealth. Church, is it ungodly to live in a nice house, to drive a nice car, to wear nice clothes, to go nice places? Or to put it even more directly, if you make $20,000 a year, are you inherently more spiritual than if you make $200,000 a year? Does Having less make you closer to Jesus and having more invariably mean you're further away. I think you could read James 5, 1 to 6 and say yes to that. 
But you'd have to do that isolated from the rest of the Bible. The scriptures are very clear that the issue is not how much you have. It's not making a lot is bad and making a little is good. Some of the godliest people in the Old Testament were the wealthiest people. Then how do we make sense of this? Friend, I think you've got to look to the underlying issue. The underlying issue that's being spoken of in verse 5 is selfishness. It's a disregard for the needs of people. It's living for yourself, thinking only of how to amass more and more and more and more and more solely for yourself instead of using what God has entrusted to bless others and advance the work and mission of the church. Friend, if you are fortunate enough to be in a situation in which you have an extra bedroom, then God has entrusted that to you so that when a a fellow member of your church goes through a rough patch, is laid off, didn't have the Dave Ramsey three to six months saved up, literally doesn't know where they're going to go, then you can most graciously, kindly fling open that door and say, come live with me. Here's a spot until you get back on your feet. That room isn't to stuff more and more and more and more and more stuff in and never share. Perhaps we could put it this way. We Christians must not live the lifestyle we are capable of living. We Christians must not live the lifestyle we are capable of living. Friend, if you treat money as a Jesus follower exactly as you would have as a non-Jesus follower, something is wrong. See, because of Jesus, we Christians live on less than we could in order that we can use the things God's entrusted to us in such a way that others get to experience the love and care of God. We become conduits to spread the name and fame of Jesus. So it's totally fine to have nice things. Make as much as you're capable of making but do so in such a way that you are not consumed by consumption. That's what James chapter 5 is getting at. We believers, in the language of James 5, we don't fatten our hearts by always spending all that we have on ourselves. And especially we don't do so in such a way that we're dishonestly getting more and more and more and more. We Christians hold what we have loosely because we understand it all came from God anyway. And we share generously, even liberally, that others might have their needs met. Toward the core of what I'm trying to argue today from James chapter 5, 1 to 6 is this rather simple sentence. Those who love Jesus do not hoard Worldly, worldly wealth for God's 
Judgment on oppressors is certain and severe. I had trouble saying it because I said it was simple. The Lord loves to keep me humble and humiliated. Those who love Jesus do not hoard worldly wealth. For God's judgment on oppressors is certain and severe. Church, God is a liberator, not an oppressor. Consequently, everyone who knows Jesus, who has been liberated from the bondage of sin, we do not live as oppressors. We live as liberators. Those who know God, who have been liberated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, live honestly, humbly, simply. We notice and respond to the poor. For we were once spiritually bankrupt. We give generously because we're ever aware that everything we have has been given by God for good. We share and even give up our possessions because our Savior became poor and gave up His life. We turn toward, never against, the single mom, the homeless, the chronically ill. Because as we read the pages of the Scriptures, particularly as we read the pages of the Gospels, we, say, we see that being for those kinds of people was just a typical day for Jesus. We save but refuse to hoard because our citizenship is already in heaven. Church throughout the last 2,000 years, since Christ came, many of the seasons of time in which the church was the strongest and the witness of the gospel was the clearest was when churches understood that what I personally have been given is given in order to first make sure every need in the church is met. That no fellow member goes hungry or homeless or unable to get the medication they need. And then that that unity and oneness and care that is shown within the body of Christ builds such a life that it starts spilling out over into how we treat people at work, at school, in the neighborhood, at the gym. And that all that spillage of generosity becomes the occasion to so clearly enunciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, God has placed us in a city that doesn't see and doesn't understand that. In which the 1% are continuing to build stuff bigger and bigger and higher and higher and things are getting more and more and more and more expensive. And the homeless 
the poor, the marginalized, are attracted, in which the rich oppressors are getting richer and the poor oppressed are coming nearer. And right smack in the middle of that is Church on Mill. Friends, may we start among ourselves giving generously, choosing to live on a lifestyle that's less than we could, being deep enough into each other's lives that we know the needs and we meet them. And then as we develop some muscle memory of generosity, then we notice the homeless guy and stop and talk to him. That we do what we can within our own jobs. That we intentionally build relationships with people of a very different socioeconomic class. That we go out of our way to share. Friends, if we'll get more and more and more serious about that, we will see more people come to Christ because the gospel will be seen and heard more clearly. May God give us all wisdom to apply these truths personally and joyfully.